Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker, 1067 FM, and on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. Big Talker over there in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting from the home studio, trying to create that great consumer choice content. I'll be alone today, at least for the uh, first segment. Our uh, normal co-host, David Clement, is actually out there in Washington, D.C., going around the town, getting a couple meetings in on the hill uh, with some partners and uh, friends, and really trying to spread that message. So David will be back uh, in segment two. We have a great interview lined up. Uh, We're going to have former Afghan Minister of Mining and Petroleum. Uh, Her name is Nargis Nahan. Uh, This is a a chance encounter (laughs) that we were able to get her on the program. Uh, But considering that we discussed Afghanistan a few weeks back, uh, we had uh, Zara Sultani on to discuss what was happening and some of the stories that she had heard. Now we actually get to speak with someone who was a minister uh, in the government, someone who worked at the central bank, someone who worked in the finance ministry, also in the Ministry of Education. Uh, She has actually started her own nonprofit uh, to aim to free women and children throughout Afghanistan. Uh, She was very, very active even before the fall of the Taliban. Since then, she has been able to flee to Norway, and now she's in relative security, and she's able to discuss these issues with us. That'll come in the second part of the program after the first break. If you guys want to listen to the entire program, we are going to put that up on the YouTube page. So just Google the uh, Consumer Choice Radio and you'll be able to find that. We'll link that on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com, and much more. So that's going to be a fun part of uh, the rest of our program. But I figured since uh, there are a couple of things that have happened in the past week, uh, things that are of much concern to consumer choice activists, to consumers and users of social media networks, there is a lot to discuss. And I wanted to be sure that we gave an adequate hearing to these issues, because I think it is very important. And the response of regulators and legislators will also be important. Because as soon as there's anything that happens in the world of social media networks, whether it is Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, WhatsApp, uh, Telegram, TikTok, there's always going to be a piece of legislation, some bill that will be introduced that will have all the right intentions, as we well know, have all the great intentions, and then will actually end up harming consumers and users and making most of these platforms unbearable, not fun, and generally not usable. So let's go first to a clip that we have lined up. Uh, This is with the uh, so-called whistleblower uh, who has come out, Frances Haugen. She was previously on the, uh, I believe, the Civil Project at Facebook, very much involved in moderating content around elections, around public and political debates. And she has come out, she's been speaking, I believe, to the Wall Street Journal the past few months, has uncovered documents uh, that uh, allege many different things, and that is giving every politician with an axe to grind against Facebook in particular sound bites for millennia. So let's uh, listen very quickly to this clip, then we'll get in a, a bit into how this actually affects consumers and users, and what we can expect from uh, the regulators over there in Washington, D.C. My name is Frances Haugen. I used to work at Facebook. I joined Facebook because I think Facebook has the potential to bring out the best in us. 
But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Congressional action is needed. They won't solve this crisis without your help. Yesterday, we saw Facebook get taken off the internet. I don't know why it went down, but I know that for more than five hours, Facebook wasn't used to deepen divides, destabilize democracies, and make young girls and women feel bad about their bodies. It also means that millions of small businesses weren't able to reach potential customers, and countless photos of new babies weren't joyously celebrated by family and friends around the world. I believe in the potential of Facebook. We can have social media we enjoy that connects us without tearing our apart our democracy, putting our children in danger, and sowing ethnic violence around the world. We can do better. We can do better, so says uh, Francis Haugen, who is the uh, so-called Facebook whistleblower. A lot of important things in there uh, to note. Uh, there's no doubt that Facebook is a huge company, a large corporation, started in a dorm room, and has now grown to become a fixture in many people's lives. Large corporation with employees all over the world, users in multiple languages. And as uh, Francis mentioned, as uh, the whistleblower mentioned, has become very important for small businesses. It's become important for people to connect with friends and family and share baby photos and family photos. Speaking of uh, baby photos. <laughs> and, and because so many people use this, and because it has become this political weapon, essentially, that's what we've heard. Uh, I would argue that it really began with the election of Donald Trump in 2016. If we remember, Facebook as a platform was blamed for Trump having gotten elected, uh, for fake news spreading, for misinformation. I mean, we, we know what the politicians normally say. We'll play a clip of that later. But I think all of this and these actions and this narrative— it's just, again, an assumption that you, as ordinary users, as ordinary people, are not smart enough to understand the nuances of news reports, posts on Facebook, social media. We all have stories of ridiculous things that we've seen, and many people consume that information, but that doesn't mean that they agree with it. It doesn't mean that they accept it. The best method that we have for combating bad ideas is not to ban them, not to relegate them into oblivion, but actually debating them and actually airing them out. That is going to convince people much more than trying to usurp people's abilities to speak freely, to use these platforms to their advantage. Are there mistakes that have been made by many of the companies? No doubt. Uh, we've written a lot about them at the Consumer Choice Center. You can find my own articles <laughs> anywhere online. And there have been a lot of mistakes. But the thing to understand is that Facebook does these moderations, uh, deletions, suspensions, all in the nature of, yes, maintaining the platform, but B, also complying to the wishes and the whims of the regulators. Uh, how many of these hearings have we had the past five years where there are demands made on Facebook uh, to make sure that there's election integrity, to make sure there's civic integrity, uh, to have a department that's dedicated to this program, to that program, to this cause. The amount of work that it must take to answer to every single regulatory function 
is is just we would not ask this of any other company of any other time and i know that there are many people who are very critical of facebook and the way that they've done moderation but we have to look at a the demands that are made upon the platform for moderation and b how the moderation works who carries it out and who are the arbiters of truth and what we definitely do not want are situations where the government where governments, whether they be in D.C. or Ottawa or in Europe, are the ones that essentially write the rules and the handbooks for which information should be considered relevant, what is misinformation and disinformation. Uh, Let's play a clip here of Senator Richard Blumenthal. Uh, He's the head of this Consumer Protection Subcommittee in Washington, D.C. in the Senate, and I believe he's one of the more atrocious members of the Senate, uh, personally, but uh, let's listen to kind of what he said. This is uh, his way of, of trying to attack uh, Facebook and the different way that, that he says that we should regulate it. So let's uh, go ahead and play that clip. Being honest and acknowledging that Facebook has caused and aggravated a lot of pain, simply make yeah. more money. And it has profited off spreading disinformation and misinformation and sowing hate. Facebook's uh, answers to Facebook's destructive impact always seems to be more Facebook. We need more Facebook, which means more pain and more money for Facebook. Would you agree? No, I wouldn't. (laughs) Uh, So this kind of, I mean, obviously this, the the way that the hearing uh, was put together and the way that it's framed uh, leads you to a particular conclusion. Uh, Facebook itself causing misinformation and disinformation, causing harm itself. Facebook is made up of people using it. It's a platform and the content, all of the content is posted by people on there. So essentially we're saying that Facebook is not censoring enough. Uh, There's a great uh, article put together by Glenn Greenwald over on his Substacks about how essentially this all comes down to the power to censor social networks and information. And while one group might say that this is disinformation or this is misinformation, another group might disagree Someone might say that they don't agree with that particular conclusion. And who are to be the arbiters of truth in these situations? One particular person that I uh, really try to listen to on these particular topics is Dave Weiner. Uh, He's actually an inventor of RSS podcasting, uh, and he he had an interesting blog post. Uh, Facebook is at least eight things, he says. Here's the list. Mark Zuckerberg, a public corporation. 60,000 employees, server, software, other tech, an advertising platform, a user community, connections to the rest of the web, the web, and the content. When journalism refers to Facebook, I don't think they're ever clear on which Facebook they're talking about. Facebook itself is just a platform where other people post. You post, I post, the Consumer Choice Center posts, people put information out there. There is no silver bullet for detecting what is misinformation or disinformation, for trying to figure out what are conspiracy theories. We can hire a million people to do the moderation, but really that is human to human. This is context by context, culture by culture. And I think the wishes of many of the politicians, particularly in a lot of regulatory agencies, and some restrictionist groups, uh, regressives, would like to see more censoring power. And I think this is very unfortunate for these platforms because that means that you are being censored. It's not just going to be those that 
disagree with you or you think are wrong, these powers, if we allow them to be wielded by governments, these will actually impact individual users and consumers. If we look at the current incentives, small businesses do not want to have their content beside all kinds of conspiratorial posts or misinformation. And Facebook provides that data. I mean, we take out ads all of the time. We target various populations, people who are living in a particular area who care about ride sharing or some issue. And we don't want to have our posts show up right, uh, right beside something that might be disgusting or illegal or anything else. And Facebook has the current incentives in the market to make sure that that does not happen. This is much more than, than just an argument about content, though. It's about the power to censor. It's about the ability for users to be on the free net and to share ideas. There's a lot that's been happening in the last couple of years. Having social networks right there at our fingertips has been amazing. We've profited immensely from this. The ability to debate, to share ideas, to discuss, to share pictures and experiences. If we go down the route of having government-mandated censoring, we might think that we're targeting one group of people, but eventually it'll be people like you and me who are going to end up with the brunt of that. And the people who are very much in favor of the censoring, they all come at it from a very well-intentioned position. We cannot deny that. We know that. But at the same time, what they're proposing or what they're discussing would go much beyond what I think was, is really possible or desirable. And that's really what to look at. We can criticize these companies because they make bad decisions, and we should, but using the power of the government to try to break them up or say that they need to censor this topic or that topic is a very dangerous path, and it's not one that we as consumers should be willing to take because that is just next level. So obviously a lot more to come for that. Hoping to, to write some articles here over the next few weeks. We'll be coming back in segment two with Nargis Nehan. We're going to talk all about Afghanistan and the future of that country. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing our next guest. Um, our next guest is coming to us from the safety of Norway. She's the former Afghan acting minister of mines, petroleum, and industries, the founder of Equality for Peace and Democracy, and the first woman to hold a leadership role with the Central Bank of Afghanistan. Welcome to the show. Nargis Nihan. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, so uh, right off the bat, I mean, obviously, Afghanistan, your home, is a, is a different country today than it was just a few months ago. Can you explain to our listeners what it was like to have to flee your country? Um, it's a very hard decision uh, because it's the second time that um, I, will, I left Afghanistan. Uh, first time I was uh, a child, uh, 11 years old, and we had to go by road uh, to Pakistan. And uh, I didn't know a lot, but I knew that something is seriously wrong about our country. 
and uh, my family is uh, struggling to take us somewhere safe. Uh, but beyond that, I didn't know anything. I neither knew the problem and I didn't know the solution. Uh, this time it was different because uh, first we were not uh, ready and we couldn't believe that things will fall apart so quickly. Uh, but unfortunately, with the departure of the president, uh, former president and all his colleagues, uh, that created a vacuum in Kabul where uh, uh, Taliban came and they took Kabul and it was a big shock for all of us because we were not ready for it. Uh, so things began to change. I remember the day that Taliban took Kabul. Um, in the morning, I went to office and things seemed normal in the morning when I went to office. Uh, I remember three to four hours I had to leave back because my brother called me and he said that uh, they are in different corner of Kabul. It's better that you, uh, you close the office and you go back home. But when I left office, when I came back, when I went out to go to my house, I faced a totally different city. Uh, it was already empty. Uh, people were panicking around. Uh, there was no police. There was uh, uh, no government uh, vehicle or anything. Everything suddenly disappeared. Uh, so we went there, we packed our things, and we uh, had to quickly shift to one of our relatives' house, and we had to stay with them. Uh, so this continued for uh, almost 10 days until we managed to get evacuated with the support of Norwegians. Uh, it was not easy because, um, first of all, it was very difficult because imagine we built a life again uh, for the second time for 20 years. And we were very much hoping that we will continue to build Afghanistan and hand over a different uh, country to the next generation. And the next generation should not go through what we went through. But the history exactly repeated itself. We were all panicking. We were in different houses. We were, most of us were hiding. Uh, we went to airport three times. Uh, first time we couldn't get, for hours we wait and we couldn't get into the gate even. We had to come back. Second time we got closer to the, uh, to the gate, but then my father fainted and we had to quickly take him to hospital. And most of us had to go in hiding again. And finally, last time we managed to leave, but it was a very hard decision because we couldn't take my father with me and my sister and a brother-in-law had to stay behind to take care of him while the rest of us managed to flee with the support of Norwegian government. So a very hard decision, uh, very difficult, uh, but then in the meantime, it was a poor decision. We did not have any other choice except this. So I definitely want to discuss a lot of the, the different efforts that you made, not just for uh, furthering along education and rights for women, but also for uh, the public finances of Afghanistan and actual business administration. And uh, just a, a short question on that. You know, do you have um, any colleagues or, or friends or others who actually decided to stay or what would have happened had you stayed? Are there perhaps circumstances that you've become aware of or, or just um, additional people perhaps that uh, unfortunately were not able to get out? Uh, I mean, even uh, I remember when I, I was actually approached uh, by the Canadian government, even before the Norwegian government, and they offered me for evacuation. And they said, you can, I can submit the application for seeking asylum under the special program that, uh, uh, that they had announced for Afghans. My response to them was that, no, I'm not going anywhere. I know life is going to be very different and it's going to be a lot more difficult once Taliban comes to Kabul. But I prefer that difficult life instead of leaving everything behind my, uh, and go to another country. 
so many of us made that decision, but suddenly when the Taliban took Kabul uh, and with the, with the policies that they began to come uh, force on women, that demonstrated that they haven't changed a lot. And those of us uh, that actually had to stay uh, because uh, many could not evacuate their family members and they didn't have passports or they couldn't get to the uh, crowd in the airport. They are all in hiding. Uh, those women that they organized the recent demonstrations that I'm sure you uh, must have followed in the media uh, against you know, like their job being taken, everything. Uh, we are in contact with them. They're all the time hiding from one house to another house because uh, things have become much more difficult. Uh, Taliban are going after uh, women's rights activists, after journalists, after ex-civil uh, uh, servants and national security forces. And they're brutally uh, killing them in front of their family members uh, outside. So it's a very difficult life for those that they have stayed behind. And especially for women, it also means that they're back in dark ages where they're just sitting as prisoners at home and they can't do anything. You, you mentioned the, the dark ages in regards to the treatment of women. Can you explain to our listeners the progress that was made over that 20 year period? in regards to how women are treated in the country and the advancements of women. I mean, obviously you holding a senior uh, leadership position in government is a, is a signal that things got significantly better. Um, but for those who may not know or may not understand uh, what the difference is between Afghanistan, let's say three months ago, versus Afghanistan in a month from now. So to be very honest uh, to, uh, to you all, um, even life for Afghan women before the capture of Taliban was not easy. We always had a saying that we were using amongst ourselves. We were saying that if you're really a man, uh, come and live as a woman in Afghanistan. Then you would understand what a tough and difficult life is. Uh, so Afghanistan is a male-dominated society. Afghanistan has been in conflict uh, in the last four decades. And that has made people much more brutal towards each other uh, and harsh towards each other and uh, in like less, with less empathy. And women have been always the victim of all the violences and conflict within the family and in the society. Uh, but the, the difference that we had was that we had women that we were fighting. So the glass was not that hard to break it. Uh, we also had the um, support of the uh, previous government, at least, uh, you know, like symbolically. Uh, and then we also had uh, general support of the international community, financially, as well as politically. So that made a lot, a lot of difference for us. So imagine the girls' uh, education, uh, participation in, in, in education was zero in 2001 under Taliban rule. But then suddenly we managed to get 40% uh, of the girls to, to schools. And that's a, that's a huge number. That's a big difference. 5% uh, of the uh, uh, university students were women. Uh, on top of that, 50% of the uh, teachers were women. More than 40% of civil servants were women. More than 3,500 women uh, entrepreneurs had the businesses where beside themselves, they were also creating employment for others. 
we had 27% of our parliament comprised of uh, female parliamentarians and 38% of the provincial uh, council members were women. On top of that, we had women as uh, ministers, not only in those typical ministries such as Ministry of Women's Affairs, Labor and Social Affairs or Education, we also had women leading uh, a difficult sector such as mining myself. Uh, one of our deputies was a woman and our minister of uh, communication was a woman. So these were all the progresses that we made. Yes, life was very difficult, but the difference was that we were hopeful. We knew that we can fight for our rights. It's going to be a hard uh, struggle, but we can continue. There is a hope. And the difference that we have now is that there is not that hope. Uh, more than uh, 2 million uh, Afghans are uh, actually being uh, uh, fed by women. That means that their breadwinners are women. The families that um, either the husbands are being killed or they're being murdered uh, because they were working. Because Afghanistan, I'm sure you must have heard that has a lot, a very high casualty, not only in the security sector, but also civilians. So all families were left behind for women to take care of them. Those women were working as teachers, they were working as civil servants, they were working in angels, they were working in different sectors, feeding their family. Suddenly, since one and a half months, they are at home, they don't have any job, they don't have any salary, they have not only themselves, but more than six to seven members of the family who are looking up to them for, uh, uh, for feeding them. Uh, and they don't, they cannot even get out of their houses. So life is very difficult. And I must say that it's actually worse than prison right now uh, for Afghan women. At least in prisons, the prisoners are, 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 are provided with three times food uh, and, 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 and in like a shelter. Right now, even there is no one to take that responsibility for Afghan women. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to hear that uh, the Canadian government uh, did not go forward because David and I are both Canadian and it would have been great to have been involved in, in getting you to Canada. Uh, regardless, though, um, you had mentioned, you know, s- some of the, the aspects of what's happened uh, over the course of the last few weeks. Um, but I, I really do hope that people get to know your name a lot more and definitely your story. And uh, much of it is very encouraging and an inspiration. And I, I think because the media coverage on so much is, is focused, at least from our countries, more on, uh, you know, the war aspect uh, the money and the guns and everything else, but you actually had a significant hand in following many great reforms when it comes to finances, when it comes to natural resources. Uh, what was that kind of like, uh, becoming a minister and uh, focusing on things like mining and petroleum and trying to attract foreign investment? Uh, sort of what was that transition like for you? Uh, I want to share my two, three actually, major experiences that um, I want to demonstrate that it's not only me, but there are many, many women like me in Afghanistan that actually they have been leading change and transformation in the Afghan society then, and, and never accepted to be a victim, even if people try to, uh, to discriminate us from time to time. So 2002, my family was in Pakistan. As soon as the interim government of Afghanistan was established with the support of international community, I packed my bag and I immediately left for Kabul. My family was in shock. They said, how could you leave? We're all here. I said, you can continue your life, but I'm going back because I want to take uh, a part in reconstruction of my country. So I came and I left on my own as a single young 23 years old woman. 
and trying to find my way to be able to take part in the construction of my country. I was immediately appointed as a director general for treasury department in Ministry of Finance. And I was dealing with all warlords where they were keeping money and they were not sending it to treasury. And I had to come with systematic reform to be able to stop them from doing that. So I can proudly tell you that today, even today, the, the financial management system that's being used by the Afghan government was the system that I put it in place, Afghanistan Financial Management Information System, that we call it AFMIS. Through that system, we managed to consolidate all resources of the government. That means that we managed to centralize all revenue of the country and we were able to decentralize expenditures of the country. Uh, for the first time, sad teachers were being paid for by the Kabul government rather than neighboring uh, provinces supporting each other because there was not that kind of system in Kabul to get all the revenue and disperse back this expenditure. So we call it that the Treasury Single Account Reform, which is very famous and many reports are written about it. Second experience was um, uh, when I felt that uh, I can no longer be effective in the government. In 2009, I decided to leave my job, although I was I had the good reputation and I was provided very good consultancies uh, in different government uh, institutions. But I said, if I'm not effective, I'm not leaving. I came uh, out and I. Uh, in the civil society, I established an organization called Equality for Peace and Democracy. And for the first time, I began to mobilize and especially engage women in the good governance that how the citizens, they can monitor government budgeting system, expenditure, monitor the services and demand uh, for better rights and also fight corruption in their communities. We'll be right back with Nargis Nahan here on Consumer Choice Radio, part two coming up. You can always listen to the full interview on our podcast or our YouTube page. You listen to Consumer Choice Radio. We're going to go to part two of our interview with former Afghan minister Nagas Nahan. Again, you can listen to the full version over there on our YouTube page. Uh, just look up Consumer Choice Radio. Second experience was um, uh, when I felt that uh, I can no longer be effective in the government. In 2009, I decided to leave my job, although I was I had the good reputation and I was provided very good consultancies uh, in different government uh, institutions. But I said, if I'm not effective, I'm not leaving. I came uh, out and I. Uh, in the civil society, I established an organization called Equality for Peace and Democracy. And for the first time, I began to mobilize and especially engage women in the good governance that how the citizens, they can monitor government budgeting system, expenditure, monitor the services and demand uh, for better rights and also fight corruption in their communities. So we had many, many cases where actually women were identifying corruption and they were fighting it from the beginning till end on like exactly how uh, um, uh, on improving the service delivery in their communities. What is more important that we also established women networks in 20 provinces of Afghanistan, where these women as local leaders were always helping and trying to be there for their communities. They managed to resolve more than 1,100 disputes and conflicts in their communities because we were providing them with the technical skills on exactly how they would do it, not only based on the 
conflict resolution that we are uh, learning from based on the international norms, but also based on the Islamic perspective, we were uh, training them so that they could go to the communities, they could identify the conflicts, they could sit with them, and then based on the Islamic perspective, help them to resolve their conflict peacefully. Uh, that is the second example. The third one is Ministry of Wines and Petroleum. The reason that I offered that job, it was a very difficult one. Uh, still many of my friends are telling me that perhaps it was not a wise decision. I said to according to me, it was a wise decision. I said it's important that we somebody just needs to get that sector and demonstrate that women can also work in this sector. So I managed to go there as a minister. And the day that I went, I started trying to uh, develop the sector. It was, uh, I mean, I didn't have any problem with civil servants, men and women. They were very much cooperative. Those that they were interested to see the sector de being developed, they were cooperating with me because they could see that I was very open to listen to them, develop programs with them, and jointly uh, uh, implement uh, reform initiatives with them. But I faced a lot of problems by my male counterparts, other ministers, the some uh, officials uh, and ad advisors close to the office of the president, because they were seeing me more in like they could not believe that there is a woman who basically wants to do things on her own. She would take your advice, but there is no guarantee that she would implement those advice. And on top of that, she wants things to be done inside the ministry. So it was a huge change for them to see that a woman is there. She wants to lead everything on her, on her, on her own. She wants to lead, to, to take all the responsibility. Even when the blame was coming on the ministry, I was taking it just to show them that I'm a responsible leader. Uh, so it was difficult for them to digest it. And, and I never gave up. Um, and I had several fights inside the system. Finally, when I resigned in, 2000, in October 2019 from my position, it was because of the high corruption in the system that I saw and sexual harassment of young women that I saw. And I several times went and talked to president about it and some others, and I said, you need to stop this. This is not acceptable. But then we got to the point that I couldn't take it anymore. And then I publicly, I made it public and I resigned from my position because for me, uh, those principles were much more important than keeping a ministerial position. And by that time, I also felt that the system and the government was not up for any kind of reform anymore. They, they were more focused on the second round of election and they, the, the priority was not governance anymore. So that was not my cup of tea. So I thought it's better that I just resign and focus back on my activities in the civil society. So it's not only me, there are hundreds and thousands of women in different sectors that they've gone out of their way and they have demonstrated. If you are a successful woman uh, in Afghanistan, uh, trust me, it's, a, it's very extraordinary because it's a very difficult country, especially for women. Uh, by the time that I left uh, uh, EPD, the organization that I, uh, I, uh, I founded, it was working already in 20 provinces, having more than 200 employees. So that says a lot about you know, how much I could do just in four years that I was working with EPD. I mean, that's a, that is an incredible story. Um... I, I certainly appreciate the uh, your explanation of uh, of your counterparts having difficulty dealing with uh, a strong, independent, and capable woman. Um, that's obviously something that will resonate for so many who hear that story, um, whether they be in Afghanistan or elsewhere. Um, in closing, our last question for you is: What can people do? who are listening, what can they do to help the Afghan people or to help rebuild uh, 
um, the country, or is that even possible given the current circumstances? Uh, my message is to the uh, listener, to your listeners, or that first of all, do not see Afghan women as victims. Um, yes, there we have been suppressed. We are still being suppressed, but still we are not victims. It's, it's a, we are passing a very difficult life, uh, but still we are trying to stand for the uh, for the cause that we believe in, and that is the equality, liberty, freedom. So what is happening in Afghanistan today is a testing time for all of us, for anyone who believes in human rights, for anyone who believes in equality and women's rights. So I keep on saying, and I'm saying that every message is making a difference, every tweet is making a difference, and every retweet is making a difference. So please continue to monitor on what is happening. And many of us are there constantly writing in social media about trying to update on what is happening in Afghanistan, uh, attending different programs and giving update on what is happening in Afghanistan. Please hold your government accountable and push for your government that they constructively engage with the Taliban and they put a list of, a list of condition for the Taliban to meet before they recognize the government of Taliban. And then um, women's rights, human's rights, minorities' rights, and open government, inclusive government, and allowing the women uh, groups and organizations to continue their activities should be on top of those uh, conditions. Because right now they have closed, uh, they are not allowing any uh, women's rights organization to, uh, to, to start their activity. They have closed our offices, they have frozen our bank accounts, and, uh, and we haven't been able to pay even our staff for the last two to three months, just because everything is frozen. We are trying to find our way out of this, but it's going to be very hard for us to do it without support of the international community, because end of the day, we are dealing with a very different group in comparison to the previous government, because this group is barbaric and they believe in, in a pushing and, and making things happen by power of the gun rather than the pen. So for us who believes in power of pen, fighting with people who believes in gun is going to be very difficult, but I'm sure that together we can make this happen. And if we manage, if we manage to maintain the woman's right and rise back again, like as a, together as in like men and women who believes in human rights, that is going to set a model for the whole world and especially for the Islamic countries that there is no way that the world is going to deal with the groups that they're going to suppress everybody. So it's a testing time for us. Whatever we do today with Afghanistan and Afghan women, that is going to set the precedent for other Islamic countries and later on for and like other countries in the region. So we hope that we look at that bigger picture and then based on that, come together and make sure that we support the Afghan women with the struggle that we're having. Well, thank you very much um, for that. And thank you very much for joining our program. We do really appreciate it. And we'll be sure to have you on again um, in a few months' time to get an update about what's going on and what life is looking like. And if the international community really does hold the Taliban uh, accountable to their commitments in regards to how they treat women. And um, I certainly hope that they will. Um, I don't know if they will, um, but it's on us. Uh, to to keep our um, to keep our ears to the ground and to make sure that our respective governments uphold that part of the agreement and make sure that um, the 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 success and the prosperity and equality for women um, in whatever way possible is is something that's um, a cornerstone in what's next for Afghanistan. So thank you again very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Well, definitely one of the more powerful interviews that we've conducted here on our program on Consumer Choice Radio. Kind of a, a happenstance uh, situation that allowed us to find uh, Nagas Nahan and be able to interview her. Uh, but definitely an incredible story. Uh, one of leadership, one of courage, and, you know, of hope, actually. So she she was able to provide a lot of great insight and stories, uh, but also does provide us with a good amount of hope for what the future can be and how people listening can make a difference. I think that's very helpful, uh, particularly for our listeners in North America and elsewhere. To hear that message uh, is very encouraging. So there's a lot more to come on that. Um, getting Nargis on, telling these stories. It's important to, to realize that why we talk about these issues and why they are so important, we believe, to our program and to our audience is because, as she stated, you know, we're fighting for equality, liberty, and freedom. And these are virtues that are very compatible with what we do each and every day, with what our listeners believe in, and all the responses that we receive from you guys, whether it be over on our social media channels or in emails. Uh, that is the type of support uh, that we know exists for these ideas, and particularly individuals who are brave, who are courageous, and who are standing up, and who've actually made a difference. Uh, so we'll point you over to her social media. Again, you guys can get the full interview without interruption if you're listening on the radio over on our podcast version, consumerchoiceradio.com. Uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff to come with our podcast very soon, so those of you who are uh, crypto fam or Bitcoin fans, uh, we're working on something right now that's going to bring the podcast version to the next level. I hope to have some updates here by next week, but that'll be very fun. And you can always go over to the YouTube channel, and there we have all of the different videos of our interviews that we conduct with guests, and also uh, plenty of other awesome videos and short clips uh, that our colleagues over there at the Consumer Choice Center have put together uh, throughout the country, throughout the world and uh, multiple languages. So if you're interested in consumer choice issues, that is the place to go. So we're going to have a little bit of a broadcasting change, uh, at least on our Saga affiliate uh, up there in Ontario, Canada. Uh, we're going to be switching over to a Saturday schedule, uh, which is all well and good for us and nice fun. And uh, the more that we can get this message out, always very fun to do so. Uh, but essentially, we are going to be Saturdays at 10 uh, so we'll actually be broadcasting Saturdays at 10, both on the Big Talker 106.7 in Wilmington and also Saturdays at 10 uh, for Saga 960 AM so that we got uh, got the things lined up. And of course, you can always, any day of the week, uh, pick up the podcast versions, go to the YouTube channel, or send us an email if there's someone you think we should interview, uh, someone that we should bring into the studios and get their take on all things consumer news and consumer choice. You can write to us, hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Next week, we're going to have a great interview. We have Carlo Stagnato. Uh, he's an Italian economist. Uh, he's actually fairly important within the Italian uh, political and economic systems. He'll be providing us some updates on what's happening in Italy, some lessons from Europe, uh, both for the U.S. and Canada on things like net neutrality, on things like liberalizing electricity markets, and really trying to provide more value and more innovations for consumers. So Carlo's interview, that'll be on next week. We'll have a good time with that. And I think overall, we're uh, we're packing a good punch. Uh, you know, this has been uh, 
crazy, hectic year uh, getting into uh, October and uh, more great stuff that's, that's coming each and every day. There's all kinds of interviews that we're lining up for you guys. We're making sure to get as many great, smart, intellectual, cutting-edge people uh, that we can here on the radio to be sure we can provide that value to you all. So again, Yael Lasoski here. David is uh, prancing in the streets of Washington, D.C. for the week, uh, so I'm on the mic. Look forward to next week. Uh, Carlos Tecnado will be here. We'll have plenty more content in the meantime. Please do follow us on Twitter, uh, follow us on Facebook, follow us on YouTube, wherever you can find us. Consumer Choice Radio is there. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, speaking for David Clement. We'll talk to you guys next week here on Consumer Choice Radio. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Asoski and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
You were destroyed through COVID-19.